Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer William Atkins takes us on journeys in desert places in his book, The Immeasurable World. William Atkins' first book, The Moor, was shortlisted for the Thwaites Wainwright Prize. He works as an editor and his journalism has appeared in The Guardian and Granta and in 2016 he was a recipient of the British Library Eccles Prize. And Will's latest book is The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places, which we're going to be talking about today. William, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Tell me how this book came about, first of all. Well, the starting place, it's twofold, I guess. The first is is simply in language and in that word desert that's so freighted with... Um, symbolic and metaphorical baggage and a curiosity about the word desert and I wanted I suppose to try and strip away some of that that kind of symbolic and cultural baggage associated with with the word and understand or seek to understand what it was like to be in the real desert and have the sand under my feet as it were Um, and the second part is biographical in a sense, uh, my, you mentioned my first book, which was about British moorland. And in the course of that book, I spent some time in a Cistercian monastery on the edge of Dartmoor. And while I was there, while I was fossicking through their, their ancient library, I um, began to read about the Desert Fathers. And uh, the Desert Fathers were the, really the founders of Christian monasticism um, in the deserts of Egypt in the second and third century. And I began to be interested in the connection between place and this particular form of religious practice, monasticism, and the relationship between the desert particularly and monastic practice. The monasteries of Britain and Europe, the West, the Christian monasteries, are often built in difficult places, often be established on the edge of Fenland or Moorland in the case of this monastery in Dartmoor and I began to understand that these British deserts were counterparts to the the deserts of the Desert Fathers so so what Cistercian and Benedictine monks were seeking when they established the monasteries in in green and wet Europe was a kind of counterpart a corresponding landscape and so yeah on the one hand the word desert and this this kind of quest to strip away the sort of symbolic and, and metaphorical baggage that attends that word, and on the other hand, um, this interest 
about the relationship between place and faith. And so that the Christian monasticism all begins with, I guess, St Anthony, who is somebody who features throughout this book. So tell us more about who he was. He's, he's sort of the presiding spirit of the book. And he was, uh, in a sense, the first of the, the Desert Fathers. St Anthony, uh, second, late second century, his parents die. And in a, in a state of, I think, grief, he leaves the town, leaves his town on the, on the Nile, um, and goes into the desert in search of, in search of God, in search of tranquility, in search of who knows what. And he became a kind of figurehead for other early Christians in Egypt. And he lived alone in in what is now called the Wadi Araba, which is between the Nile and and, and the Red Sea in the eastern desert of Egypt, and somewhere I I spent some time. And yes, he became a figurehead for thousands of men and women. There were desert mothers as well as desert fathers who left Alexandria, uh, left the towns and cities of the Nile, and went into the desert initially as anchorites, living separate individual lives miles from one another but slowly there was this process of kind of aggregation into communities really for reasons for practical reasons if you're in the desert it's it's easier to to live as a group and safer to live as a group um, than individually and so in a sense the first monastic communities the first um, communities of, of, of monks and of nuns were were created out of environmental necessity um, and the successors of those original monasteries still exist in the deserts of Egypt today. And I spent um, some time at St Anthony's Monastery uh, in the eastern desert, which I mentioned, which is on the site where St Anthony is believed to have lived. And it's also on the site of one of the only springs in that vast desert, which explains why there was any life there at all. Apart from obviously the you know there's the anchorites and the monks and the hermits, the desert has always been something that's drawn a certain type of you know writer or explorer. And of course, I guess although actually there is a woman missionary that we'll talk about later on, but you know generally back in the day it was men of a certain type who were always drawn to the deserts, and you know not least because in those days when you looked at a map, the desert was literally a blank space on the map. But of course. There were always people living in those deserts, you know, people who didn't really have any choice but to live in those deserts and weren't there just to, you know, to test their masculinity against nature or something. So in writing this book now, how do you sort of avoid falling into the traps of some of those people that perhaps we would uh, we'll talk about in a bit? There's a tension at the, the heart of the book between the Western experience of desert, particularly British experience and, and the peculiarly British attraction to desert landscapes. Uh, think of people like Wilfred Thesiger or, mm-hmm. or Lawrence of Arabia on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the indigenous experience of these places. And one of the things I've been interested to do in the course of, of, of researching and writing this book is to, to some extent, seek to bridge or see, see to what extent it's possible to bridge that gulf of understanding um i think of two images from from the western desert of australia one is of a a 19th century map made by british explorers of a of an early stock route and it's a bit like the bellman's map from the hunting of the snark in other words it's it's almost completely blank apart from a single wavering line 
and maybe three or four blobs that mark um, waterholes. And another image, um, which again we can think of in terms of a map from um, the indigenous people of, of that region, the Aboriginal people of that region, showing the same place insofar as we can understand it as the same place, but a, an image of extraordinary depth and complexity and colour and meaning and detail. And again, you can see, you can see the um, waterholes marked, but you can also see evidence of a much deeper level of understanding and complexity in that landscape that for Western, Western explorers in, in, in that region appeared to be a, a, a kind of a void place, a, a nothing place, a place without any value. In the course of writing the book, I went to um, a place called Maralinga, in uh, South Australia, which is where the British carried out their nuclear tests in the 1950s and 60s. And it's a story that's relatively little, little known, I think, in, in the UK, but fairly widely known in Australia. And this was perceived by the British military and by uh, the Australian government who gave them permission to carry out these tests. This place was perceived as a place without value as a, as a, a non-place, as a, a blank. And so, again, you can see a gulf between that understanding of that desert place and the understanding and the experience of that place of the indigenous Nanangu people who, who live in that part of Australia and who were turfed off the land and whose land was destroyed. So the book is a travel book, of course, but also a book of repertage, places and I guess because it's it's a thing now we could also talk about it as nature writing so what other writers were an influence on it there's a wonderful Egyptian Jewish poet called Edmund Jabez and he was exiled to Paris um, in the early part of the 20th century and he this in a way brings me back to to where we we started and those kind of impetus points that I mentioned and he wrote that the metaphor of the void from being used so much has permeated the whole word the word has become a metaphor to give it back its strength one has therefore to return to the real desert and that's I mean articulates much more clearly than I did my reasons for going on this series of journeys in the first place so I think he's a wonderful writer of of desert places I also Think I mean perhaps strangely I I think of sometimes novelists as being significant sort of influences and W G Zebald is is important writer for me Rebecca West is a very important uh, writer who is a, really a, a travel writer but one who writes in a kind of novelistic mode uh, the list is kind of endless although my influences have by and large not tended to be sort of conventional travel writers. Um, I mean, I love some of uh, T.E. Lawrence's writing about desert places, but I, I, I'm more drawn to D.H. Lawrence's writing about, about actually also about arid places, New Mexico, for example. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I don't, well, like a lot of writers, I'm slightly uneasy with the idea of being categorised as any particular sort of writer. I don't really think of myself as a travel writer so much as someone who goes to places out of curiosity and then describes the experience of being there, which I suppose is a definition of being a travel writer. But, um, but yeah, I kind of, I, I, I'm uneasy slightly with that label, partly because of what you were alluding to earlier, that uh, tradition of particularly British explorer writers of which I don't really feel a part. 
Okay, well, we're going to go on to talk about some of the places that you visit, some of the people that have visited before and some of the people that you perhaps meet while you're there. So let's talk about, first of all, the empty quarter in Amman. And this is a place where some of those writers that we keep alluding to, some of those explorers, Wilfred Thesiger, Bertram Thomas, Harry St. John Philby as well. Um, these are those sort of like classic people that, we, that we've described as colonially going off and conquering the desert, conquering this empty space on a map to the bemusement of the people that are like, you know, carrying their bags for them on the way or something. So who were these guys? Well, um, but I mean, I, I write about uh, the beginning of the book about, particularly about Bertram Thomas. Um, and for me, he's the most interesting of that kind of, those three figures you mentioned, Bertram Thomas, Wilfred Thesiger and, and St. John Philby. Um, and he was, there was a large element of competition between uh, Bertram Thomas and, and Philby as to who would be the first to cross the empty quarter, the, the Rubel Kali, this great um, uh, desert that occupies about a third of the Arabian Peninsula, about the size of France. Um, and it's an extraordinarily difficult place. And yeah, I suppose for all the scepticism, I tend to read these accounts with I'm also full of admiration for the kind of the sheer physical and uh, emotional and psychological um, achievement of exposing yourself to that experience and that extremely difficult place for that length of time. And my question is, and it's a question I pose to myself, I suppose, um, is why? What's the rationale, the impetus for doing this to yourself? And fame, perhaps, um, and perhaps there's also, you know, a even in that post-colonial era, a element of uh, patriotism in their mind. But I'm also curious as to the kind of deeper personal explanation. If there's if there's an explanation in biography that that we can look at to understand why it was these men, what kind of men it was largely men, um, why it was that um, so, so often British men who were, were drawn to these places, particularly to Arabia. There's a wonderful book called Scenes in America Deserter by a guy called Rainer Bannum, wonderful um, art historian, architectural historian. Um, but it's about the desert culture, particularly in the US. Um, and he said something that's really always, it really strikes me and really has stuck with me. Um, the Protestant's mind's eye may be vanquished by the desert without incurring the moral penalties of aestheticism. And I think about that in, in regard to Bertram Thomas, Wolfram Thesiger, T.E. Lawrence, again, Lawrence of Arabia. But I also think about how the desert landscape has often been a kind of comfort to people for all its harshness. And I think, and, and you can think about um, people like Philby particularly, who was um, not somebody who you would describe as a British patriot, I don't think. Thesiger, certainly. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, as people who perhaps found in the desert landscape an echo of something in themselves, in their own souls. I think it's fair to say of, of Thesiger and of, certainly of Lawrence that, and to a lesser extent Bertram Thomas, that they found themselves on the margins of British society. There was something in British society that did not accept them. And I think perhaps they found an echo of that kind of marginalism in this marginal landscape. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to William Atkins. We're talking about his book, The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places. And Will, I mentioned, we're going to move on to the, the Gobi Desert in China next. And I, I mentioned earlier a British missionary, her name's Mildred Cable. Um, how did she end up there? Mildred Cable, um, she's this extraordinary figure. And, and again, I think a figure that you can see in, in that context of the discussion we've just had about um, the male explorers in the empty quarter um, insofar as I think she was somebody who was uneasy with um, the constraints of life in, in Britain she was a missionary as you said of the, the China Inland Mission um, in 1901 she left England as a young woman 21, 22 and went not to Beijing or Shanghai but to the far west of China to to Kansu and Xinjiang provinces as they are now and she spent the next 15 years of her life what she calls uh, gossiping the gospels in the Gobi Desert and crossing back and forth across the Gobi and um, doing precisely that gossiping the gospels um, living life as a missionary and um, yes she's she I think saw herself as part of a kind of continuity of religious practice in the desert. She often spoke about the Desert Fathers, for example. Uh, And so, again, I think she saw herself as somebody who, in the biblical tradition, went to the desert for enlightenment. But, of course, she was also an evangelist. On to Kazakhstan now. 
and you go to an area called the Aralcom, which is basically what was formerly the Aral Sea, the, at the time the fourth largest inland sea in the world. And now it's, it's, it's pretty much gone. What happened? Yeah, the, so the Aral Sea was the fourth largest inland, as it were, body of water in the world until the 1960s. And it lies between uh, what is now Kazakhstan and uh, Uzbekistan in the, the steppe of Central Asia, although it's really desert steppe, very dry, kind of scrub, flat, scrubby land without any trees and, uh, and with some sand dunes. And in the 19, early 1960s, the Soviet Union decided it needed to be self-sufficient in cotton. Cotton uh, likes heat and warmth, but it also likes water. It's a very thirsty plant. And so it was understood by the powers that be that um, the only way to become self-sufficient in cotton and to provide enough water for this amount of cotton um, was to draw water off the two feeder rivers of the Aral Sea, the Sidaria and the Amudaria. Um, and the effect of this was to destroy the the RLC. It was described as a mistake of nature because all this this water was just uselessly, as it were, in their minds, um, feeding into the RLC and, 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 and wasn't being used for anything apart from maintaining the water levels of the sea. And but of course, there was uh, you know people living and fishing and there was know. yeah there was there was a I think a, a fishing community of seventy or eighty thousand people and those communities as a result of this decision to uh, draw off the water from the, the Sidaria and the Amudaria, those communities were destroyed. Um, and now you can, as I did, go to one-time fishing villages with harbours and with harbour cranes and the water's edge is 50, 60 miles away. Um, the capital of that region, Aralsk, was once a thriving fishing port and now you can look at, out at the harbour um, from the harbour edge and just see this gaping dry void and the water itself and there's not very much of it left at all is uh, 40 or 50 miles away and you can walk on the one-time bed of the Aral Sea and it feels like a, a desert and as you say they call it the Aral Kum um, Kum means sands uh, so the Aral Sands. And so this is a man-made desert. Mm. So and a recent man-made desert. Yeah, I mean, so, very recent. You, you know, you're, to, to the untrained eye, somewhere like, you know, the the empty quarter would just look like sand dunes after sand dunes after sand dunes. But this is obviously something that's formed over thousands of years. Yes. Um, so what does, like, a, a, a recently desertified area look like? So you can you can walk for hours uh, across this very flat, grey, it's a bit like kind of wet ash or sort of day-old porridge or something like that. I was there in quite a wet time of year. And you can see nothing, pretty much, apart from the ground, the sky, your footprints. In the very distance, you might see some salt pans or some cliff edges, the, the former shore of the see but i think the distinction between the experience of that desert and actually the experience of the the nuclear test sites in marilinga in australia have something in common in so far as they are deserts in the old sense that they're simply abandoned places places without without life and most deserts even somewhere like the empty quarter which is hyper arid and apparently without life are actually thriving biodiverse places if you wake up in the empty quarter in the morning if you've slept under the stars you won't necessarily have seen any life but there'll be footprints all around you 
And if there's a drop of rain, there'll be foliage will, will spring up from the sand. And so I was always struck by how uh, the way that natural deserts feel like living places, thriving places. Whereas the RLC particularly, as well as nuclear test zones in Australia and New Mexico, they feel dead. And they're places of kind of despair and of hopelessness. And what's striking was striking to me in the course of researching the history of the RLC and, and the RLCUM and, and how that disaster came about is that it wasn't a question of improvidence. It was a deliberate decision to cause this environmental catastrophe in order to, as I say, become self-sufficient in cotton. So a, a decision was was made. And I think that places like the RLC and Marilinga, they feel to me like warnings. And I think that's something that increasingly I feel about the experiences I had at those places, that they're kind of, they're warnings. Just one more place then. And you spend time in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. And, and this is a desert that, of course, forms in large part the border between um, Mexico and the US. And you spend some time there working with a charity being taken out and seeing you know work they're doing for you know Mexican immigrants crossing that border. And obviously... Know, literally having to cross this this desert as well. What was that like? Tell me about that experience. I I spent some time with an organisation called No More Deaths, um, which is this wonderful Tucson-based uh, charity. And what they do is every morning, very early, before it, the, the, the heat sets in, they drive out to the desert from Tucson into the Sonoran Desert, south towards the Mexican border. And along the established migrant routes, the routes used by undocumented migrants who have crossed the the fence and are are attempting to make it into the US, they leave water, uh, but also food and fresh socks and things like that, but primarily water. With the aim of simply saving lives, I met some young Guatemalan guys while I was there undocumented migrants who had crossed the desert and they themselves had had encountered some of these these aid drops and so these guys to a certain extent are they're saving lives but the thing about the Sonoran Desert is nobody knows how many people are dying there every year it's certainly well we know it's dozens because dozens of bodies are uh, are picked up including by um by no more deaths but the desert that particular desert destroys organic matter very quickly. Um, you know, there are coyotes out there and foxes and so on. And so the actual number of people who are dying every year in the Sonoran Desert and all along the desert border with Mexico is probably in the hundreds. We hear a lot about the um, the current president's ambitions for um, a great big beautiful wall. And what strikes you very powerfully when you're in that desert region is that a wall already exists and it's it's the desert and if you can if you you are able to cross 80 miles of this very very harsh waterless desert a desert that's so dry that it's very difficult to even carry enough water to keep yourself alive if you're able to to do that then then you're able to cross any wall that anyone wants to build Um, and so this idea which is at the heart of that chapter of the way that landscape is deployed as well as a barrier but also as a kind of uh, as a as a means of killing people and so they have this strategy in the in the u.s which goes back to clinton's era of um uh, deterrence through or prevention through deterrence they call it which is really to say that um you make it so dangerous 
to try and come into the US without the proper permissions or papers that people simply cease to do it but of course if you're 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 fleeing a um a tidal wave then you'll jump off a cliff to save your life and this is what happens and so because the security increasingly in the 90s and through to the early 2000s was was focused on urban crossing points like Nogales for example which were by their nature safer places to cross people began to go out into the desert because there was less uh, there were fewer border patrol guards there and so the numbers of people dying increased and um yeah that's that's the situation that hasn't improved of course and, and one which will get worse so I've been talking to William Atkins. We've been talking about his book, The Immeasurable World, Journeys in Desert Places, which is out now from Faber. Will, thank you so much for coming in thank and telling you. me about it's been it. A pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.